Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, are we doing enough to physically distance ourselves? Dr. Elizabeth Richardson joins us to talk about that. Members of our local community outreach groups are demanding the police stop ticketing the homeless for not observing physical distancing. Is there a solution at hand? And the Ontario Nurses Association is asking industries for help with donations of loaning of personal protective equipment to help the fight against COVID-19. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, of course, an update on what we're doing here and how we're doing in the Hamilton area. Are we doing enough physical distancing to make a difference here? Uh, We are joined by uh, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, the uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health here for the City of Hamilton. Dr. Richardson, thanks so much for the time. How are you feeling today? Good morning. I'm doing well, Bill. It's nice to have some sunshine, that's for sure. Yeah, we could use a little bit of that. I even noticed everybody in my neighborhood, I mean, they're all doing their distancing, but just a couple of laps around the, the corner here, just to, trying to get out there and get some fresh air while we can. It's tempting, I know, but we have to stick to this, don't we? Absolutely, we do. I know it's, you know, I experience it at home with my own kids, and uh, I'm sure others do too, in terms of people just getting to the point of thinking about how long this is going on, being bored, lonely, all of those things, and uh, and we have a, while, a ways to go yet with this, with the social distancing, the physical distancing, of course, being the most important part, the social connecting, um, you know, through other means being so important. You know, when you talked about uh, about family violence as well, and I know you're going to talk about that later on the show, and mm-hmm. we're we're quite conscious of all the unintended uh, consequences of of um, you know what's what's happening um, with physical distancing and whatnot. I think it is you know it's definitely time to double down. We can't uh, back off on this right now. We need to do this in order to uh, contain the spread of COVID nineteen. But at the same time, we need to be very mindful about uh, about what else is happening and you know the importance of connecting with people, the importance of um, providing supports to people. You know our mental health uh, agencies out there in the community have looked at what they can do to support virtually. And um, we know it's not quite the same as, as coming to talk to somebody directly, but there are a lot of supports out there in the community that people can still reach out to. You hear the mayor talk about it, about the Kids Help phone line each time yep. uh, we do a press uh, conference at the at City Hall. And, you know, all of those resources are out there, and it, they're, it's so important that we continue to maintain them, although we're doing them in new and different ways. And thanks very much to the innovation of all the providers who are out there. But, uh, you know, people do need to reach out just socially, stay connected, you know, whether it's messenger chats uh, in the evening, uh, video chats, whatever it is, it's such an important part of getting through this. Well, I thought it was instructive that uh, that our political leaders, I guess it was a week or two ago now, the Prime Minister and even uh, Ontario Premier Doug Ford, uh, when they were talking about their uh, their packages, their compensation packages, et cetera, and, and the packages for assistance, uh, both of them highlighted uh, extra money for mental health issues. So obviously they're getting good advice from, from their medical advisors that, look, this is going to be a problem, and it's going to be a larger problem as long as we're doing this. It is. It is. You know, and it's it's interesting to talk to people because I think we are thinking about family. I think we are thinking about connection in new ways. I, I know when I drive in and out to uh, to work, I see a lot more people out walking and, uh, you know, cycling for a short little bit of exercise outside. So there, there are a lot, there's some positives that are coming out of this uh, in that way. But yes, there are lots of challenges that people face. Sometimes it, it makes uh, those problems all the more acute. And so those supports really need to be there to help people. 
Let's talk a little bit about our situation. And we hear uh, every day, of course, we watch the Prime Minister, and then we see our, our doctors, of course, at the federal and provincial levels talking about the, what's going on. Uh, but we always use the phrase, of course, flattening the curve, and we've talked about that extensively over the last couple of weeks. Uh, how is our curve looking right now? I know you track this on a, on a daily and weekly basis to see what's happening here in Hamilton vis-a-vis uh, new cases, identified cases, and things of this nature. Uh, we've been at this for a little while now, a few weeks, Doctor, and uh, are, are we making a difference? Do you see a, a change or any positive news from the, in, in our curve here? We do, we do. So we're at 170 cases as of noon yesterday. And, um, you know, when you think back, that's 100 more cases than we had last week. And you think, wow, that's that's a big increase. But, of course, when we're talking about in infectious disease, we're talking about how it spreads from person to person. So every person that's sick could infect one, two, three more people. And it's it's when that doubling time, the doubling time in the number of cases you have gets down to about three days that you know we're in real trouble, that it's, it's spreading very quickly. And our doubling time right now is sitting at about five days. So, you know, some days it's a little higher, it's seven, eight, uh, but we track it on an ongoing basis, and on average it's sitting, you know, down around five days. So that's good news. That, to me, says we are making a difference because we know this disease can spread faster than that if left unchecked. Um, it's too early yet to tell. We were we have been doing modeling with our, our colleagues at MAC and that our colleagues in the hospital, and it's it's too early here in Hamilton to make good predictions um, as to, to where it's going. We think we're going to need the weekend to sort out, you know, take some of the advice that they used at the provincial level and, and look at it and see where we're at. But as we track along, one of the things that we do follow is doubling time all along. And that says, you know, we are making a difference. Otherwise, it would be spreading faster. And we're always, you know, trying to remind people, I, again, I come back to some of the most common things we see in terms of cases. And it is still people who are going out when they're mildly symptomatic at the beginning of their illness. A lot of it is spread inside households as well. So, you know, doing that self-isolation inside the house, I know it's tough, you know, very tough if you've got kids. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult thing, though, to say, okay, you're going to, you know, to a teenager or an adult that you're going to stay down the hallway um, and, and just use your own bathroom and all those sorts of things. But it's so important in terms of, of reducing the spread. In situations like this, I find it interesting how different people are handling this and, and those numbers. And invariably, and I'm sure you get the same uh, question as, as I do almost on a daily basis, how much longer is this going to go on? And I, I, I'm, I'm getting the sense, Doctor, that you can't look at a calendar and say probably there. As you just mentioned, the data will determine how long this is going to go on. Absolutely. We, we can't point to the calendar at all. We can learn from the experience of other countries that have been through it and what they've seen. Um, but we also, you know, know that, um, so you know, that's why we're, we're saying these, these measures are so very important, the physical distancing uh, measures and, and the uh, close down of non-essential workplaces, all those sorts of things are also very important to do. But we are, you know, working with this virus as it goes in a, other countries' experience as they come out from having flattened their curves and what happens next. And, you know, the, if the virus is still around, it can spread. And so, where can we, we start to make movement after the peak is, is something everybody's working on around the globe. You know, what can we do? How could we step back? Because ultimately, we need to understand if we create, if immunity is created with this, if it's long-lasting immunity, and, uh, and ideally have a vaccine created in, in the next year that could uh, vaccinate those who are, who are still susceptible. And so that piece, I'll, I'll just come back to it again and again, is, is what we're really trying to do is protect those that are most vulnerable, protect those mm-hmm. that are most likely to have complications, to end up in an ICU, to, 
those who are most likely to to die from this disease. We're trying to protect those people uh, most of all during the, this period of time while the vaccine piece gets sorted out. The other element to this too, are obviously you can only accumulate this data from the people that actually report this and are identified. Uh, I'm, I'm going to assume that there's an awful lot of people that are probably going to contract COVID-19 and not even, well, they might know it, but they're not going to report it for various reasons. They'll st- they're staying home anyway. Figure, okay, I've got this this virus. I'm just going to have to rough it out. So those those don't come into the stats, obviously. But as long as they're doing their social or self isolation, I think they're going to be okay. But I was here's another question I wanted to ask you today again because I'm getting an awful lot of these things, uh, knowing that I'm talking to you on a daily basis. Ask the doctor this. Ask the doctor this. And the common one I'm getting right now is how do you treat COVID nineteen? Uh, not everybody's going to be hospitalized, of course. But but how do you how do you go with it from day to day? What do you take? How do you try to uh, treat the symptoms? I guess that you're going to be suffering from. So that's that's very much it. You know, for most of us, it's going to be a bad cold. You know, and some people really won't know that they were were infected. We always know that that happens as well. Um, that they have a mild illness, and they may not have really understood that's what it is. But most people will have a bad cold, and so you treat it the same way you would any cold. You know, you stay home if you're sick. You you um, try not to spread it to anybody else. You wash your hands and those sorts of things. That you take some some fever relievers, some some mild um, you know muscle ache relievers like Tylenol or, or ibuprofen and you, you know, get through it. Uh, you know, for most of us, that's the, the way it'll go. Um, for those who are sicker, they do, you know, need to see somebody and see if they need a little bit more treatment than that and can still stay at home. So is there something they need to do because they've developed a worsened cough, they may have developed a mild pneumonia, and so are there other supports that they need, but they can still stay at home. And then for the sickest cases where they get a bad uh, pneumonia they, and need to be in hospital, then we're looking at, um, again, oxygen and, uh, you know, unfortunately for some being in an, in an ICU so that they can be watched very closely or even having to go on a ventilator. But there is no, there's no antibiotics, there's no antivirals, there's no specific treatment for this um, that's out there. So it's all what we call supportive care. So it's making sure that people um, have everything they need to be comfortable, that they are able to eat and drink and get their fluids and stay hydrated. It's uh, supporting them with oxygen if need be, and then supporting them with intensive care if that absolutely is needed. All right, knowing that everybody feels miserable when they get that, whether it's a cold or a flu or whatever <laughs> it might be, and, and obviously they're going to get that same reaction, I guess, with COVID-19. But is there a, is there a, a point in which you say, maybe I better get medical attention? And is, is it the breathing aspect of it that might be a clue that maybe this is a little more serious? Yeah, that's exactly it, Dell. It, it is the breathing aspect, but this one in particular that is, is the big sign. So you may have a bit of mild sort of difficulty breathing, but if you're really feeling that there's a challenge with your breathing, that's where you, you do need to seek care. A lot of family doctors are doing virtual care still, so you can consult with them. But if you're really in, you know, feeling you're having to, uh, trouble breathing, that's a time to go to the eMERGE department and uh, and see if you, if you need something more. I want to get into the the mask issue, if I could, with you. I know that's been a topic of controversy for the last couple of weeks now. You should wear one. You shouldn't wear one. You should. You shouldn't. Uh, there seems to be a change in attitude on this now, and but but maybe not for the reasons. That's even uh, what we're hearing now from from our our federal folks here is that not a bad idea. And I, I think the consensus I seem to be getting on this, doctor, is well, it wouldn't hurt to wear one. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? So that's that's the change. That's the the one we've been looking at as we go forward. Is is uh, and t- understanding the virus and understanding that there's definitely a phase before you feel sick 
where you're able to spread the virus. And we call that the pre-symptomatic phase. And it's, we know it's at least 48 hours. That's the thinking from the science. And um, so for people who are in that phase, so they do have the virus, um, but they don't know that yet. The thought is that by wearing a mask, you could prevent it spreading to other people unknowingly. So it's not as much a protective measure for yourself. If you're the person um, who's wearing it, it's not so much to protect you from others. It is to protect you from spreading it to others. And um, we're, the um, information that Teresa Tam gave out yesterday was around non-medical mask use because we so badly need those medical masks, the surgical masks, the N95s. We need them for our healthcare workers who are you know, working with people who are sick with COVID-19. They're at much higher risk uh, than the rest of us are day to day, and uh, they need those masks. And so we're asking for all those masks to go to the healthcare workers and others who are supporting people um, in the community while uh, people in that are you know, out and about when they're going to the grocery store, if they're um, going to the pharmacy, they can use a cloth mask that you can make at home. On the Centers for Disease Control site, there's a, some great pictures as to how you could make a cloth mask or use a T-shirt to make a mask. So it's, it's using a tightly woven fabric to stop those droplets from coming out when you speak, when you breathe, from um, being uh, put out there into the, into the air that others might pick them up. So that's the, the shift in the mask piece is really to, for those who are in the very early stages with COVID-19 to stop them from spreading it to others. The way this is going on right now, there seems to be a, a consensus among some folks in the medical field, too, that just assume you have it. Assume you might be a carrier. Uh, and, and in other words, you know, err on the side of caution in just about every instance. Is, is, is that feasible? Is that what the, the right way to approach this? It's, it's good advice because what we would say to somebody who's got it, you know, stay home as much as you can, or if you've actually got it, stay home all the time and self-isolate. But if you're assuming you've got it but you're not symptomatic yet, you would be staying home as much as you can, only going out if you absolutely need to, you know, wearing your mask and all of those sorts of things. So if, you're, if you've got those symptoms, then you need to stay home and isolate. If you're asymptomatic still, Presume you do and take all the, the precautions to stop it from spreading while you go about about your uh, your business each day. I mean, we're in this time of year right now where we're still in flu season, obviously. I, I mean, I mean, I've been feeling a little under the weather the last couple of days, but I know it's allergies. I get this every April, and uh, obviously because the milder weather is here. So, uh, but just assume you don't know where that virus is or what impact it's having on you. And as you've described to us. This can impact ten people ten different ways, can't it? I mean, you, you might, as you say, just feel you've got a cold, or it could be a severe case. You don't know it. Or it just may stay as a mild case, and you'll never know that actually it was COVID-19. So this idea about just assuming you have it is probably not a bad idea. No, absolutely. You know, And as you said, what we see consistently with the cases that we do get reported is, is that um, people going out when they just think it's something, something mild and uh, not taking action perhaps early enough. That We certainly see people, lots of people who do, but I would say the, the one thing that people can do and continue to do better is if you're feeling anything, and I hear you about allergies, I'm a, I'm a summertime, springtime allergy sufferer too, and, and it come, becomes pretty clear for me whether it's my allergies or it's yeah. cold, <laughs> you know, when all the itching sets in and everything else. So, But if you're in that stage and you're not quite sure yet, hmm, I feel like I've got a tickle, I feel like I've got a bit of a stuffy nose, I've got a headache, Stay home, wait it out, see what it develops into, and you know let your let your spouse, let your your teenager go and do the grocery shopping that day, and and not you, um, whatever it may be. Stay stay at home, 
stick it out, see what it is, let it develop. And when you become sure, now this is just my usual seasonal allergies or, oh, this really is something more than that, then you'll have protected everybody um, from the from the virus. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, uh, as always, doctor, thanks so much for the time today. Uh, stay healthy and uh, please extend our thanks and gratitude, by the way, to everybody in your staff for the great work that they're doing to uh, help us get through this. Thank you, Bill. I know that means a lot to all of us. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Members of uh, a couple of different local community outreach groups now are uh, demanding that police stop ticketing homeless people for not observing physical distancing. As we said, it was a lovely weekend last weekend. A lot of folks were downtown. And uh, we've been telling you, of course, that uh, there are rules in order about physical distancing. And those who do not adhere to that uh, will get warnings. And eventually, if they don't uh, comply, there there will be tickets. Well, apparently, a number of homeless people were given tickets this past weekend. And, uh, well, Chief of Police Eric Gert explained it this way. The people were warned, uh, told about the distancing and the grouping. In fact, as I understand it, some were sharing a bottle between themselves. When you look at the messaging from Dr. Tam, uh, all the way down to uh, Dr. Richardson here, uh, that exposes those homeless people to a potentially life-threatening situation as well. But uh, the other side of that coin, of course, is uh, is this really just penalizing people that are in desperate economic straits and homeless? I'm wondering if Claire Bodkin into the conversation. Claire is a member of Hamilton Smart, Ham Smart rather, and a resident physician here in Hamilton. Claire, thank you for joining us today. I'm glad you could have some time for us. Thanks so much for having me on, Bill. Give us, you've heard Chief Gert's explanation for this. Give me your read on what's going on and why. Yeah, so uh, the way that I understand this and, and Hamsmart understands this is that this is a public health problem and not a policing problem. Um, and what that means is that um, we agree that people need to um, physically distance in order to stop the spread of COVID. But when people aren't physically distancing, we need to take a look at why that is. And I think, you know, most Hamiltonians have heard that there were people ticketed on the golf course for playing golf. That reason why is very, very different than a person who doesn't have a home um, and who isn't able to practice physical distancing because they don't have any home to be in or anywhere to go. And so then the solution to that problem from our perspective is that it's not about issuing tickets. It's not about policing and enforcement. That's the wrong response. It's about looking at what are the things that people need in terms of shelter and food and access to washrooms and those sorts of things that allow them to practice physical distancing. In my way of looking at this anyway, Claire, it seems to me as if I've always talked about the fact that, you know, this is not business as usual in just about every facet of our lives, and it's going to be this way for the next little while. But uh, what this does is underscores the homeless problem that we've been talking about all the time anyway. Yeah, certainly. And I would say at HamSmart, we we agree like the the people who are homeless, they experience things like poverty um, and it intersects with all sorts of other other problems um, in terms of mental health um, and those sorts of things. Uh, and we haven't collectively as a society been able to respond appropriately to that and help people to get safe, independent um, housing so that they can they can you know have that dignity of being housed that important thing we know everybody needs to be healthy um, and really this pandemic has just highlighted that and and really brought that into stark relief we should maybe spend a couple of minutes here explaining to people exactly the plight of, of the people that are quote-unquote homeless because uh, they say well there are shelters well first of all the shelters are full uh, and as I understand it, most of those shelters, if not all of them, Claire, uh, they give you the, the, the occupants a place to sleep at night, but not through the daytime. They, they, there's really nowhere for them to go. 
Yeah, so I think, that, I mean, I think the situation is changing day by day. Um, some shelters are allowing the, the people who are in them to stay there during the day. Other shelters are not. They're asking people to leave during the day. So it depends on the shelter. Um, and then there's a number of people that aren't in shelters for a variety of different reasons, including capacity, although I know the city is working really hard to try and make sure that everybody has a place to, to live. Um, and so people just actually have nowhere to be. And when we think about the places that people usually spend their time, folks who are homeless often are in um, uh, like public libraries or um, other public spaces like that, um, uh, accessing public washrooms in restaurants, those sorts of things, all of those places are closed now. So people really have nowhere to be. So what what do we do in a situation like this? And I, by the way, I agree with you. And I, I understand that police are doing what police think they should be doing. And, the, you know, people that are not adhering to the, these laws, I, I get that. But this reminds me of the debate we had a few years ago about, uh, you know, people that were panhandling that were getting tickets. And, I, and, and it got to the point of, of, of ridiculousness. I think there was one guy that had about $30,000 in fines mm-hmm. uh, from tickets. There's, this man was homeless. There's no way they're ever going to pay these fines. They simply can't do it. That's one of the reasons why they're homeless. There's, there's no money and there's a number of other mm-hmm. issues going on. So it seems to be a fruitless exercise, but there's, there's got to be some sort of a solution here. Yeah, so I think we can look at solutions at all sorts of different levels, right? So we can talk about an emergency universal basic income at the federal level to help make sure that everybody has the resources they need, and then we can scale it down to the the local level. One thing that I'm so um, impressed and heartened to hear is that St. Patrick's Catholic Church downtown and Father Tony O'Dell they have actually taken it upon themselves to open a rest and hygiene station that's going to open today for the first time at 1 o'clock. It'll be open every afternoon, seven days a week, um, for people to actually go and be inside and um, use the washroom or get food, all of those sorts of things. So I think those are the sorts of responses that I um, I want to see the city taking, uh, the city of Hamilton, and I call on them to take, and, and I'm so impressed that um that st patrick's is is doing this and is stepping up to the plate to care for our community that uh of course is the the big church at the corner of victoria and king mm-hmm. street uh, and not coincidentally it's the one with the 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 uh, the statue right out front there of a homeless person sleeping on a park bench mm-hmm. uh that is so lifelike and realistic but it uh, it's, it is it's heartening to know that the church is opening their doors mm-hmm. uh and that's the kind of outside the box thinking that I, i'm guessing that we're looking for in situations like this the city should be able to do more than they're doing and, and i know paul johnson with his background, is, is very cognizant of this, and I know he's looking on solutions here. But you also look in situations like this, well, like St. Patrick's, Claire, where you're thinking, okay, who else out there in the private sector can step up and help here? Absolutely, and I think, you know, something that um, Hamiltonians are known for is how caring we are as a community and how much we want to, to take care of each other. Um, and HamSmart certainly would um, be happy to provide medical support and advice for anybody else that's thinking about how can they do this safely um, and how can they offer what really I would characterize as an essential service. And when we look at the, um, the list of essential services, caring for people who are homeless is on that, that list from the province. So um, I really hope that other people, other groups are thinking about how can we step up and do this for our neighbours, for our community, and, um, and we would love to, to help people in doing that. 
and again, we're getting into government structures here, which can be awfully frustrating. And, and sometimes when you get into this, people's eyes just kind of glaze over. But it, it's somebody's responsibility. And I know the feds are throwing money down to, to, you know, for income replacement and for businesses, and that's wonderful. And the province is doing the same thing. But this group, the homeless group, always seem to be the ones that get left out. They're at the bottom of the pile or the end of the line, whichever analogy you want to use right now. And uh, unfortunately, it's usually up to the municipality to look after uh, these, these, these issues as they crop up like this. And you'd like to think that the other two levels of government would step up here and try to help out as well. This is not just a Hamilton problem. This is a problem in just about every community in this country right now. Yeah, I agree. And and I think that I do think that municipalities are best poised to offer the most um, sort of tailored solution in their communities. Um, but with funding and support from um, from the province, from the federal government, which, you know, they've they've offered those level of levels of government. And now I really um, I know it's easier for me to call on people to do it than it is to do it, but I really think that it is the responsibility of uh, our city, of our mayor, of Paul Johnson and the people working with him to to take urgent, urgent action to make sure that people have a place to go and not fall back on policing people, which frankly I don't think is going to work. Like I think if we keep giving out tickets, um, people are going to keep being out in public because they don't have anywhere else to go. They don't have anything, any other option. So we give out tickets, but we haven't actually accomplished our goal, which is trying to keep everyone in Hamilton healthy and, and safe during this pandemic. Well, you saw the picture in the paper this morning, of course, of uh, two or three men that were, I guess, outside the Salvation Army uh, place on, on York Boulevard there, uh, right by Bay Street. And, uh, and to use your example, uh, I mean, if they're staying in that shelter, uh, where do they go? Uh, you know, on, on a sunny day like this, you know, they may have gone into Jackson Square at one time, and uh, or or anything, uh, and wandered around. Or there's a number of places, but the doors are locked just about everywhere now. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. That's that's the question, and so I think that's where we need both um, city leadership as well as, um, you know, whether it's private or nonprofit community partners to actually um, help and. Uh, um, and step up to provide space for people to be. Where, where can we start looking for for this sort of assistance? I mean, I, I know that it seems that most every suggestion we're going to bring up here is going to sound contradictory to the whole idea of physical distancing, uh, but you can have something like a, a, a drop-in shelter or, or someplace where the people can go, where you can still maintain the physical distancing that's supposed to be happening in situations like this. Again, it's it's calling for some creativity here, but it's not it's not impossible. Absolutely, right? And we have all of these spaces that have been shut down and actually aren't operating in their other capacity. I've heard staffing brought up as a real issue. Well, I I think the latest number was 1.6 million Canadians have applied for EI. Like, I know that it's a challenge, but I also know there are very skilled, um, compassionate people out there that aren't working right now and that we have the ability to work together to um, care for the people who are most vulnerable in in our community. Well, and it's very difficult to track, as we've talked about, because not everybody reports and, and says, I, I'm homeless now. Uh, you know, I'm a statistic. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it just happens. And, and, mm-hmm. it, it, and it's happening more and more because of the tough economic times right now. I, I, and this is going to, I, I'm assuming, uh, bring back the discussion about things like basic income and, and problems of this nature, which basically, after the government said that they couldn't afford to do that six months ago, for all intents and purposes, that's what they're doing now, uh, which mm-hmm. kind of gives some validity, I would think, to that argument. It may. I mean, I will confess I'm not a public policy expert, so I think there's probably other people that are better better 
situated to comment on that. I will say that, um, you know, the people who we're uh, working with and interacting with who are homeless, they don't actually qualify for the basic income or the, no. the emergency benefit. So, um, so for us, it ha- we don't think it's going to make a big difference in the people that we're uh, working with right now. No, in that regard, no, I understand that. But at the same time, there are people that are becoming homeless right now simply because uh, they can't yeah. afford rent anymore or they, they've got other problems. And I, I know we're opening up a door here, with, which, you know, is, it got so many different levels to it. Uh, you know, mental health issues, addiction problems, things mm-hmm. of this nature, uh, which exacerbate the, the problems that each and every one of these people are going through right now. But it underscores, I think, the need that we have as a community to make sure that we have those support services for those people to try to deal with those issues. Yeah, and to address the the underlying root causes, like I think um, understanding what are the reasons why people's housing is really vulnerable, and 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 what are the things we need to do to to help people not lose their housing, to not only help people get housed, but not end up in that in that situation in the first place. So where do we go from here? Uh, I mean, you heard the explanation from Hamilton Police, and 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 you know the city is working at this, and I know that everybody seems frustrated, but you know, we can go downtown right now, Claire, and you're going to see people that are in this circumstance. How, how do we deal with this? Yeah, so, I mean, I would offer um, three main suggestions. So okay. one is that we are, so we as HamSmart have reached out along with some other stakeholders to police services, and then they've said they're willing to meet with us. So we're, we're working on setting up a meeting to talk about what the policing response is, because uh I feel really strongly that ticketing people and policing people is is not the the response that is going to either help people and it's actually not going to help um, deal with this pandemic. So I think that's one thing. Second thing is for community partners to step up, follow the lead of St. Patrick's um, and figure out what they are able to offer, whether that's private businesses, whether that's not-for-profits, whether that's religious groups. Um, there are... Um, ways to offer these essential services uh, uh, safely. Um, not with no risk, but I think with very little risk and recognizing that the, the benefits of offering that service far outweigh just leaving people and not supporting them. So I think that's the second thing. And the third thing is that um, I think all of us need to keep putting pressure on the city. Write your councillor, write the mayor, uh, call people and say, hey, what are you doing? How are you figuring this out? I know it's a tough problem and it's an important one. we gotta keep, we got to keep working. Well, and I think in the short term, the uh, this the, the St. Patrick's uh, example, I think, is maybe a template that others could follow. Um, mm. <laughs> I'll, I'll state the obvious here, Claire. That's not the only church in Hamilton. Uh, yeah. And and people are not going to services anymore because of, of the, the physical distancing that we're supposed to be in. But that doesn't mean that those buildings can't be used. Uh, and, and the more people that buy into something like this, well, the fewer there has to be at each location. It makes all kinds of sense to look at that. And uh, I guess what we're looking for here and what you're looking for for uh, for the community right now in the short term is for somebody to step up and say, I think we can help out here. St. Patrick yeah. certainly has done that. Uh, I'd like to think that there are other uh, church communities uh, that, that could do the very same thing with their buildings. I think so too. And I, I would um, also say that we know that often churches have older populations who are more vulnerable to COVID-19. So we need to think about how, even if we're not a part of a religious community or church community, we can step up as individual citizens or groups and work with them so we can we can deliver these services, but we can do it as, um, you know, as safely as possible together. 
Well, I'm hoping that we can find a solution. I wish you good luck. Uh, please keep uh, us informed. I, uh, the meeting with the police should happen sooner than later, I would hope, and uh, there should be some airing out as to you know what we can do here and work collectively. Yeah. It's uh, it's again one of those issues that uh, that crop up in a in a pandemic in a crisis situation like this. And, and we've always maintained that we don't want to see people get left behind. And it kind of sounds as if that's what's happening in this situation. And, uh, and it's, it's maybe unwittingly, but it's still happening just the same. And I think we have to find a solution here. I agree. And I, and I have, um, I honestly have a lot of faith in, in Hamilton and in Hamiltonians to figure this out. Claire, thanks so much for the time today. We'll stay in touch and hopefully we can find a resolution for this. Thanks so much, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Stay healthy. Claire Bodkin, a member of HamSmart and, of course, resident physician here in Hamilton. And it's it's not a bad idea. And I understand it's not without its challenges. Claire's absolutely right that uh, you can't say, hey, physical distancing has to be the order. But now we want you all to go into one building. Uh, but there could be some accommodation made where we can still maintain some physical distancing uh, without trying to, you know, spread the, the virus, obviously. Uh, if there's where there's a will there's a way i guess that's that's the cliche we should hang our hats on here and see just who's going to step up in the next little while and uh hopefully some people are going to come up with some innovative solutions to this you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml a different light on on, on the mask thing as well uh yesterday dr Teresa tam of course who's been guiding the uh, the federal government with her uh, very intuitive uh, knowledge about what's been happening here with uh, the disease and the virus uh, suggested that maybe, maybe wearing face masks is not such a bad idea after all. Wearing a non-medical mask, even if you have no symptoms, is an additional measure that you can take to protect others around you. In situations where physical distancing is difficult to maintain, such as in public transit or maybe at a grocery store. Uh, and you mentioned, uh, of course, uh, the doctor that uh, what we're doing here, of course, is non-surgical masks uh, because those that are surgical masks, those are that are used in hospital situations and in, in uh, health situations are in short supply right now. And that's a real concern. Uh, so much so, as a matter of fact, that the Ontario Nurses Association is calling for industry to help with donating or loaning personal protective equipment to fight COVID-19. Vicki McKenna is with the Ontario Nurses Association, and uh, she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Vicki, thank you so much for the time. Great you could join us today. Thank you, and good morning. Listen, before we get into the the, the meat and potatoes of what we're going to talk about here vis-a-vis masks, uh, please accept our, our gracious thanks for the great work that you, the nurses are doing in situations like this. Uh, I know we've seen the, the video on newscasts over the last couple of weeks now where uh, they're being cheered coming and going from their shifts. Uh, and it's 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 incredible to see the dedication that's going on in hospitals uh, on a daily basis of course but when a crisis like this hits uh it, it's just if it's just so heartening to know that we have such dedicated people that are doing such great work well they are absolutely are dedicated and they're you know they're there every day and working extra overtime on uh, doing everything they can to help uh certainly care for the people that are in hospital but also, you know, just passing the message on in their community and with their families. You know, stay home, please. And one of the things the nurses say to me, tell them to stay home so that we can go home. You know, because we want, we want to see those numbers drop. Uh, we want to see fewer people, in, you know, infected. And certainly, uh, you know, they, they themselves want the personal protective equipment that they need in order not to be you know, an individual that transmits or takes it home to their family or communities. So they're there and they're fighting hard and they're doing everything they can to keep us all safe. 
that's just a point that I, I think we can't speak enough of. Uh, it's one thing to say, hey, they're working extra shifts, and, and because of all the people that are coming in and being treated, even some of them going into ICU situations, uh, that the nurses are there. But the nurses and doctors are actually putting their lives on the line. I mean, this is a deadly virus. And they're right there interacting with the people that are suffering from that virus, which is why uh, your call here for the kind of equipment that's necessary, I think, is is, is so uh, cogent to this conversation. Absolutely. We are, you know, certainly I know the government is due, and I believe they're doing everything they can to get the supplies that we need in our health hospitals and all of our health care settings in long-term care and in our community with our home care nurses. Uh, they're working really hard to do all of that, but I think that there is something more that can be done, and we've raised this with government, and I know that there have been donations made from industry in particular, but we also know that there is higher levels of protection out there in industry, uh, such as some of the respirators and um, some of the other, what would what we call higher level protection than the N95s that are used in industry settings, and particularly... Uh, this week, the premier, you know, shut down more more companies, more industries from actually operating. So the call out is to to the industries to say, if you have respiratory protection, please donate it. Please signal that you have it. Let the government know. Donate it to a hospital near you. Uh, we need every piece of personal protective equipment that's available. And you know, we all need to do our part. I know industry has done an amazing job. And we're hoping, you know, that there's more out there that some might not have thought about uh, donating to the healthcare system. And I can say that we really need it. And it's it's good to know because I've seen some of these stories, and we've carried them on Global News, of course, about some companies that are retooling right now to try to uh, to, to come up with the product that you're talking about here right now and the necessity for them. And you know, places that were hockey equipment manufacturers are now making you know masks and 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 visors, which is wonderful. But the whole thing is that, you know, you can't, in some cases you can reuse these, but I mean, the numbers are, are there, the numbers are climbing, uh, and, and the protective equipment seems to be running out. I mean, this 3M decision that we got, which is great news, of course, for everybody, uh, you know, was, was great, but it was just 12, 12, 14 hours ago that the Premier said, look, we've got about another 10 days worth of stuff in there, and then yeah. we're out. Quebec is in yeah. a similar situation. I mean, people need to understand just how dire the circumstance is. It is. It's, it is dire. It's critical that we have the equipment. And, <clears throat> you know, we talk about and you hear so often on the news N95, N95, and those are absolutely uh, masks that can be used in healthcare and should be used, particularly when treating uh, COVID-positive patients. But there's higher levels of protection that are used in industry, and those are those respirator and hoods that you see uh, on the news in particular, and you see it uh, sometimes on the news flashes from other countries where they are wearing full hooded uh, gear um, that is a higher, much higher level of protection. And what we're saying is, hey, if you have that, if you use that in your industry, uh, please, please consider donating it and, you know, or loaning it. A um, lot of that equipment is not single use. Uh, N95s are single use. Uh, and certainly I know there's, you know, work underway to see if they could be re-sterilized and all of that science is very questionable uh, right now. But the, the equipment that is not single use, the stuff that can be cleaned, can be repurposed, that we know it already is available, 
and the science is there. So let's pull that out as well. Let's use everything that we have available to us and uh, get it to the healthcare system as quickly as we can. Is there anybody looking into this? I mean, this seems like such a, a, a sensible thing to be doing. You know, as you mentioned, so many of these industries are shut down right now because of, of the social distancing that we're supposed to be doing. But the equipment's sitting there in, in some of these factories. I mean, somebody should be knocking on those doors and saying, look it, uh, we need this. And, and that, that really, I think, falls under the guise of the federal government, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I have raised it provincially uh, with those that okay. are actually charged with procuring and finding uh, equipment and said, please make the call out. Please make the call out to these organizations and ask them uh, if they have equipment like that in their insti- or in their factories, please, please, you know, send that in. Signal that you have it. And, you know, in the long run, it may be cheaper uh, to, to have this equipment because what we are using now is disposable. Maybe there is something to be said about getting equipment that is not disposable and able to be cleaned and reused. And, I mean, I'm not, you know, the the environmental specialist of the world by any means, but certainly equipment that can be reused would certainly seem to be a benefit overall and may in fact be cheaper in the long run. Well, I wondered about that because we've all seen uh, some of the videos, of course, of, of how this is going on in Europe whether it's France or Spain or, or even in the mm-hmm. U.K. And, and your point's well taken, Vicky. I mean, I looked at some of the healthcare workers over there, and it looks as if, well, they're basically wearing hazmat suits, you know, that uh, yeah. uh, full protection. And I thought, well, I guess we don't need those over here. Well, yeah, we do. We just don't have them. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, there are, I think they are here. We just don't have them in our system like we Exactly. And, and you do. That's what I mean. You do see it on news clips in other jurisdictions, other countries. They're using... Uh, this higher level of respira- respiratory, and they're wearing like, just like, and, and probably is, hazmat suits. And I think that we have to seriously think about that. Well, and again, I think that underscores just how serious this virus is and how concerned that uh, the people that are on the front line, the doctors and nurses and healthcare workers, are and why they're looking for this equipment. The other element to this, and I'm glad you brought this up with the province, because I keep waiting for this from the federal and the provincial governments, is some sort of an action from either or both, I guess, to, as you say, to say, okay, let's talk to industry right now. Uh, you you made such and such right now. Stop making that and start making these masks. Start making these now. Some have voluntarily done it, and they're to be congratulated. Mm-hmm. It's yes, you know, it's absolutely. not. It's it's great to know that that's happening. But a lot more could be doing more if the government simply said you have to now, as of as of today, and there it's within their purview to do that. Uh, you know, anybody can. I, I'm not. You know, I can't go back to the days of World War One and World War Two, but I mean, having read some of the historical uh, references that went on back in those days, that's what government essentially did. Uh, you know, you're going to make this right now because we need this for the war effort, and uh, I, this is a war. And you know, everybody has characterized it as that. Why aren't we taking those extreme measures? Yeah, it, well, it is a war. It feels very much like a war, and uh, <clears throat> that's just how nurses and health professionals are describing it and describe themselves as feeling like they're on the front lines and worried that they don't have the protection uh, in the equipment that they need or won't have it when they really need it. So, you know, certainly the government has authority to order. I think that voluntarily, even the call-out would make a huge difference. And, and I really believe that, you know, people, industry in particular, if, you know, the call-out goes, um, you know, they step up. They're stepping up all over the place. And I... You know, I can't thank them enough for everything that they're doing, but I, 
I think there could be more. And if we just signal it out there, and also if the Premier, you know, and, and the Prime Minister make statements like that, you know, conscious, you know, clear statements to industry, they may not even be thinking about that, not really even realizing that the equipment they have could be used in healthcare settings. So it's not their world, it's ours, and I think that we need to speak out about it. Well, and, and this is this th- outside-the-box thinking that I think we've all been waiting for from the government. And, and again, I don't want to paint this picture that they're not doing anything. I think they are doing everything in the, they, within their power to try to do stuff. But the, it's time to ramp this up. I mean, anybody who's still... Uh, in any position of authority here, and I'm, I'm talking about at the governmental level, that thinks this is a short-term situation, is, is mm-hmm. got to give themselves a shake. This is not going away anytime soon, mm-hmm. and it's not going to happen. You know, I know some people are saying, oh, oh, you heard the vice president in the States the other day saying, I think it's all going to be over by the end of May, but their Memorial Day. Of course it's not. Oh, I mean, how's, that's folly. We know that's a situation. So we need some solutions right here and right now. Uh, you know, to be able to go to some place, a factory, and say, uh, you guys, you used to make cotton T-shirts. Okay, you, right? okay now you're going to make hospital gowns, and, and that's, this is what you're going to do. And, mm-hmm. and it's not that difficult, I'm told, to be able to change over and start doing things like that. But you need somebody who's going to say, first of all, say it has to happen, and then somebody to coordinate those efforts. And I don't see that happening as of yet. Yeah, I am not sure that that is happening as you describe it either right now. I think that... And, and the timing, people say, how long is this going to last? You know, I wish there were crystal balls that could tell us or even scientific models that could tell us for certain, but that's not, going, that's not the case. And the other thing that we need to think about is, you know, we're in this situation now. What does our future hold uh, for, you know, months and years ahead of us? And so how do we best prepare ourselves for whatever comes next? And uh, these are the kinds of things that I think us absolutely have to be top of mind. I believe there's probably people out there thinking about that, but even uh, after SARS, and I was a working nurse during SARS, and there was lots of talk about, okay, so what do we do, you know, what do we make sure we do so that this never happens again? And then, <clears throat> and then it was always the theory, particularly from the scientists, is it's not about if it happens, it's when it happens. So we have to be prepared and we have to not only invest in it, but we have to consciously prepare for the future and be ready. And these are the kinds of things that I think can be put in place now, but certainly for the future as well, so that we are in the best possible position. We're not dependent on other countries to provide us. I mean, we've heard the Premier talk about that as well, that we need to, if we're going to, ask industry to do certain things and we're going to in the future when the need isn't at what it is today that we purchase from them so that they have ongoing um, customers so to speak that they have a customer base for the future as well and that Vic- would be something that Vicky, we're hoping hoping to get some action from the government on this thank you again for the so time uh, thank you for this call out on this and uh, stay safe as and pass that on to to the other great folks on the front line and hopefully we'll get some good news out of this thank you for the time I, today i certainly will and you too stay safe thank you Vicki mckenna from the ontario nurses association the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 chml the Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.